listening to the Go and Tell Gals podcast, and I'm your host, Jess Conklin. In most of our episodes, we'll have a guest, a woman who is running on mission right where she's at. We pray this podcast leaves you encouraged and spurred on to go and tell the good news. Gals, we have such a gift. With today's episode and interview, we have the incredibly wise, the incredibly lovely Lisa Turkhurst. And we've been reading It's Not Supposed to Be This Way for our book club this month. This is my second time around reading it. I cannot get enough of it. Lisa, thank you so much for making time to talk with us. You are so welcome. I consider it such an honor. I'm a big fan of your work, so this is really fun for me. Listen, I don't even know what to say about that. I would like to contest that I may be the biggest Lisa Turkers fan there is. I, <laughs> I know that I've read a good portion of your 20-something books. I think it's in the 20s, right? Yes. Yes. You're so I'm going to talk about that later, but um, I'm just really thankful for you, and I am very, very, very thankful for this book. Well, thank you. That is so kind. So at this point in the month, when the when this episode comes out, our gals will have been reading the book. A lot of them, I assume, will have finished it. They've submitted a few questions that they want to ask you about. And I want to ask a few questions that I've had after reading it as well. But here's where I want to start. I want to ask a question that I'm always interested in as an author, but also just reading this book. What does it look like the day you sit down to start writing? It's not supposed to be this way. (laughs) That's such a good question. And I wish I could have some big, stellar, impressive answer like, well, first the marching band goes through my front yard (laughs) celebrating this big endeavor I've got to do. Then the confetti falls from the (laughs) So, you know, the beginning of a book for me really aren't um, that epic, but they are really important. And so... I actually spend about six months before putting my hands to the keyboard. Instead of writing, I spend about six months listening. Mm. And what I mean by that is I have a general idea of the topic that I want to cover, but I don't want to make the assumption that I know all of the answers because most of the time my topics come from either problems that I'm having or questions that I'm asking and where my problems and questions intersect a good portion of my audience's problems and questions, then I know the possibility for a message is right there. And if the message seems like it has enough potential for 50 to 60,000 words, then I know it's not just an article or a blog post or a podcast that Mm -hmm. actually has the potential to become a book. But what listening to the audience does for me is it expands my vocabulary of how I talk about this. Mm -hmm. It also allows me the opportunity to listen to the skepticism from other people, which is really important. What I, I know that one of the biggest obstacles I have to help my reader overcome is assuring them that I've thought through their skepticism even more than they have. So building up my vocabulary, feeling the skepticism or understanding the skepticism of readers, and then also looking for fresh insights that Mm. expand the theological study that I want to implement into this book. Because 
I'm very, very committed that my writing will not be tired and typical or full of cliche Christian answers. I really want to offer to my reader the fact that I will address this in a way that doesn't just preach well, but actually lives well. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when I first start working on a book, I don't actually start writing, I listen. And I do that through posting social media comment and then reading the comments. I'll leak information out in my messages and watch the audience that I'm speaking to react. I'll present it to my staff. I'll do focus groups. Focus groups are really important to me. I probably do eight different brainstorm sessions with Mm. different groups of people that give me the opportunity to really listen. I actually just did one this morning with a portion of my staff for the next book that I'm working on. Wow. I love that. That was so generous to share with us. Thank you so much. One thing I want to capture in there is that listening process. It must be such a fear fighter and a choice of faith which other people may not know this, but I find this thing rise up in, first of all, when you have a message or when you have an idea, so many women immediately do not want to hear anything skeptical about it. (laughs) They do not. They do not want anyone to poke holes in their potential very good idea. So it's just, that seems like such a beautiful faith step to say, like, let me see all sides of this. And also as an author to say, I trust that God has given me this particular message enough, maybe that he might be giving me this message for a book that I don't feel some need to immediately jot it down and put my name to it and get it out. Both of those things to me show so much faith and patience and trust in God and his message that obviously comes through so well in your work. Well, thank you. Yeah, I guess my thought process behind that is I would rather have people poke holes in it on the front end when I still have time to fix it rather than in the Amazon comments on the back end. I can't possibly think through their skepticism or address their skepticism Mm -hmm. if I'm not aware of what it is. So that's what helps me with that. And so, you know, it does feel scary sometimes to bring, you know, a precious idea in its infancy before people and allow them to poke holes in it. But for me, there's such a safety factor in that, that Mm -hmm. I've learned to welcome it. Yeah. I love that. Okay. So I'm going to summarize what it's not supposed to be this way has meant for me. So I'm not using any of the very good, you know, Amazon language, But to me, it is an incredible book on what to do about the problem of pain, what to do with with pain. And we went to our podcast listeners and said, hey, what what do you guys want to hear from Lisa? And so many women asked this question in a million different forms. But how was it writing about a season that was so incredibly painful? Was it therapeutic? Was it hard? Was it life giving? Mm -hmm. That's such a good question. So honestly, it was all three, you know, was it hard? Yes. Obviously, you know, when you write about hard things, it causes you to feel exposed and being exposed is hard, you know, Mm -hmm. but I also know for me, it is a lot easier for me to write in my friendship voice when I'm connecting with people over painful situations rather than natural strengths that I have. Because for me, when, when I'm writing, I know that 
everybody can identify with the failures that I've experienced in life or my places of struggle. Very few people can identify with my successes. I have kind of a systematic approach of how to do this so that I don't just stay in the pain, but that I really carry people forward. And so when I start in the pain, that's hard. But then as I go through the process, it actually becomes therapeutic. Mm -hmm. And I really don't imagine a crowd of people reading my book. I just imagine one person. And so I'm always speaking to just one person, Mm -hmm. but I give you a little insight in this. So if I'm starting with my pain, I know that other people are in pain, but they may not identify exactly what the problem is. So I have to carry people from the pain that they're feeling to identifying the actual root of that pain, which is the problem. So Mm -hmm. I have to carry people pain to problem. Then I need to carry them from that problem into the possibility that there are solutions, there are answers to the problems that they're having and the questions that they're asking. So I carry them from pain to the problem to possibility. And then I've got to make sure to not just cast the vision that it's possible to change. The next step is increasing the probability Mm. of them actually being able to change too. Now I'm taking them pain to problem, problem to possibility, possibility to probability. Then I know I've got to carry them from probability knowing that they can take the first few steps all the way to process, which is showing them how to get some momentum around new habits or new ways of thinking. Hmm. Now we've gone from pain to a problem, problem to possibility, possibility to probability, probability to process. Now I've got to get them from the process to progress Hmm. where actually we're meeting goals And the most important thing is suddenly now we have this desire being birthed in our heart. We've made so much progress at this point. Now we have this desire that's building in our heart to help others who are all the way back where we were in pain. And that's the point where progress turns into purpose Mm. and that completes the cycle. Mm. So for me, taking people from pain to purpose is really crucial. And if I can do that, especially around the hard things, you see, it's like, Mm -hmm. that's where the therapeutic side comes from, because as I'm helping other people, I'm turning my own pain into purpose. Yeah. So (laughs) I didn't include any questions about this. And I don't even know that I have that many questions to ask, but I got to pause right here and say, I think the average reader of yours or follower online could gather this, but I have had a firsthand look at this in, in so many different areas. And the thing is, you are not just an incredible writer and an incredible minister of the gospel, but you are wildly strategic and wise about processes and how to help people. And I know so many friends who look to you, look to Proverbs 31, look to what you've done. I mean, all of that that you just said is going to be mind blowing for someone who wants to write or who wants to start a ministry. And I think if I have a question in any of it is, did you always know that you had also the gift of strategy and wisdom regarding this business ministry, how to gather and encourage women, or did it come like with the faithfulness and the obedience? 
Well, I'll tell you, you know, maybe God hardwired inside of me the propensity for strategy, maybe. But honestly, let me just tell you where my strategy comes from. It comes from my coping mechanism to not freak out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I have a lot of vision for things that could be. The problem is that I love to jump into my vision and I think all things are possible, but very quickly I start to freak out that I've jumped into this vision and, you know, there's this really tense moment that a visionary has when a lot of people are looking at you and all of a sudden you realize I got so excited about this vision, but now I don't really know how to realistically make it happen. So I don't know if God hardwired me and gave me a propensity for strategy, or if I'm just disorganized enough Mm -hmm. to realize strategy will save me in moments where I've jumped in too quickly. So I don't know the answer to that question, Jess. I'm just saying... (laughs) I don't want to make you think like, man, Lisa wakes up and just has this perfect plan for her life because, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't, I wake up and I'm like, oh shoot. Like at the present moment, I can't even find my computer. So, you know, (laughs) (laughs) I'm using my daughter's computer so we can get through this interview. But you know, that's what I'm saying. That's kind of the reality of my life. Like I have little piles of paper here and there and everywhere. So I don't want to give people this impression that I've like got it all together. Maybe it, part of my strategy is that it all together. So I've learned how to qu- think quickly on my feet and develop processes to save me, you know, yeah. but I do know whether I'm leading people through the message of a book or whether I am leading my staff at Proverbs 31 Ministries or whether I'm leading an audience through a message that I'm speaking, that there are certain strategic things that you have to do in order to keep people engaged. Mm. And you know, one of the most important things is people don't really care about your book or your product unless they know that it is going to help them. So I know, for example, when people ask me, what is your book about? I know they're really not asking for a description of my book. What they're trying Mm -hmm. to figure out is what's in it for me. And so if I can always remember to fight for my reader on the front end, they'll fight for me on the back end because they will know that I'm leading them somewhere. I'm not just entertaining them with good writing, but that I really am giving them something that's so valuable Mm -hmm. that they can have confidence that it will make a difference in their life. It'll be worth the money that they invest in the book, but even more than that, it'll be worth the time that they took to read the book. And because I'm writing about very vulnerable subjects, I have to be vulnerable myself. So, you know, that's not a strategic decision. That's really a heart decision. Hmm. The strategy is how do we get from the point of just being vulnerable with one another all the way to really producing steps for people to take that are not illogical leaps, but rather step-by-step leading them from this point to this point. And I also give myself permission in any message I mean, part of my, I guess, strategy, if you want to call it that, part of it is when people enter into a book, they're not actually looking for the ultimate 
solution to their problems or the ultimate answer to their question, they're looking to take the next steps, which helps create momentum in their life in a positive direction. Mm. And if we can just create a little momentum of them moving forward, then I believe the Holy Spirit takes over and carries them into places like the next steps after my book finishes. And that's yeah. really beautiful because sometimes people come up to me and they'll say, I read it's not supposed to be this way. And I love the part where you talked about this, this, and this. And I'll think to myself, well, that wasn't actually in the book, but then I kind of smile because I know I helped them take a few steps in that direction, but then yeah. the Holy Spirit spoke to them. Yeah, that's so good. Well, one question that we did get from a lot of people online, which I, I think may tie into this question a little bit to what, to what we just talked about is, do you care about the Enneagram and do you know what you are? Because I am curious in light of the wisdom and the planning and the strategy where that comes in. <laughs> Good question. So I know some Christians are freaked out over the Enneagram. And, you know, my pastor taught me a long time ago, eat the fish and leave the bones. In mm -hmm. other words, if you engage with something, take what's helpful. And, you know, you don't have to eat the entire meal. You know, it's like you can pick and choose what's helpful and then what's not. You just let it go. So that's kind of my approach to the Enneagram. But I actually have found a lot of insight in understanding the nine numbers of the Enneagram. And at first, when I first started reading about this and took like a quick little online test, I thought I was a one. But then the more I read about it and my daughter, my oldest daughter who works as my executive assistant, she is a pure one. And when I started looking at the differences between me and her, I recognized that I must be somewhere on that linear, you know, or if you look at the Enneagram, all nine numbers and the different connections, I must be somewhere close to a one, mm. but I'm not a one. And so I continue. So it took me quite a while to figure out what I am, but where I landed is that I'm a nine. So I'm a peacemaker, mm. but I have a very strong wing eight. And sometimes my family is convinced that I'm really an eight wing nine, but, um, because my core motivation is peace, you know, my core motivation mm -hmm. really isn't confrontation. I think I'm a nine, but I have so much eight in me that a lot of times my eight will get me in trouble. And then it takes me quite a long time. My nine has to chase behind my eight and clean up a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I understand that. I am an eight wing seven. A lot of people, if you ask a lot of people, they will not believe I'm an eight at all. And it's because I let my seven do the welcoming and my eight doesn't come out until we're really close. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah. I love that. That's really beautiful. Go and tell gals what uh, we talk about is really using what you've got for the good of others and the glory of God. And this is my drumbeat, my heart, my passion is to help women see when they are really driven by, of course, giving God glory. But that's not a foregone conclusion for so many of us. And it, it does take a lot of heart checking of like, am I doing this for his glory? But also really focused on others, just how much energy and vision and passion and tenacity that will give us when we are focused on others. And I know that I know that I know that you do not write a book like this unless you are massively devoted to the good of others. And obviously that comes through 
not only in your writing, but even just hearing all that you shared about the process for you. And so a question I have is, I don't know where this point happens for you. For me, it's not when I start writing. It's not even in the middle of writing. Usually it's sometime after I'm done writing a book, there may be a flash of a moment where if I'm really feeling free (laughs) and safe, I may be able to find another human or to find a journal and just write down my dreamiest dream prayer for this book. And, and, you know, usually it's something like, I pray God would use this book to change the language of our generation, or I pray God would use it to do, I don't know, blank. And so I'm wondering what would have been the best case scenario and what still is, because God is still doing such a work in and through this book and will, I know for decades, is there like a dreamiest prayer for your reader that you would hope that God would do in their life after reading it? Yeah, I think, I think I probably have three for the book. It's not supposed to be this way. One is I hope it really does help people who are asking those very understandable questions. Why me? Why Mm. this? Why now? Why God? To be okay with asking those questions and not feel so much guilt around asking those questions, but also to make peace that God doesn't want to be explained away. He wants to be invited in. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes we want answers to those questions so that we can explain away the process of whatever it is the Lord's taking us through, or that we can, you know, explain away what God is doing. But You know, I I pray that people learn to just stand in the midst of their pain and invite God in and not feel like the only way to make peace with God is if God gives them answers to their questions or if God provides the exact outcome they expected. And, you know, when we talk about in the introduction, you know, I get very attached to outcomes of my own making Mm -hmm. and I've had to make peace with just inviting God in. So that would be one of my prayers is, um, God doesn't want to be explained away, but he wants to be invited in. You know, Mm -hmm. the second prayer that I would probably have is to give people back a little spiritual orientation Mm -hmm. of understanding life between two gardens, you know? And for me, this has helped me look at different hard events in my life and go, well, of course I feel disappointed, you know, Mm -hmm. or of course this is happening. This is life between two gardens. And, you know, that's not a negative view on life. It just helps me keep my spiritual orientation that this isn't all there is, you know? Yeah. And sometimes we feel air because we start to feel like this is all there is. But when I remember I am doing life between two gardens and I am headed to a place where things will be perfect again, but I'm just not there yet. So just helping people regain their spiritual orientation, I think is really important. And then the third big hope for this book, and it's probably a very, very simple thing. And that is, I just wanted people to not feel so alone, especially women who have had the exact same experience as me. Now, obviously I wrote it for everyone to be able to use to process their disappointments and disillusionments and devastations. Yes, all of that. And Mm -hmm. you don't have to have the same story as me to get, you know, a lot of the book, but 
for those women who really have hurt in the way that I've hurt with, you know, their marriage because their husband had an affair, I just know how alone you can feel. And I just really wanted them to know you're not alone. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I love that. The idea of being in between two gardens, I would say my most you know, personal answer is God really answered that prayer for me in reading the book. And that kind of ties into my next question, which is kind of personal for me. <laughs> I, hope it'll, I hope it won't be too personal for you. But this is something I often think about. And for whatever reason, God really jumped up and worked on my heart through reading, it's not supposed to be this way, is the idea that everyone's encountered pain and some of us have, you know, encountered what feels like unthinkable pain. And I have noticed that in times of pain, God really is near and I I sense his presence and I can even almost look back on seasons of pain with fondness now, just because I know This is where it gets good. This is where his strength is displayed in my weakness. That was a beautiful moment. Where I tend to struggle is after pain, I have an intense fear of ever going through any other pain. So this manifests mm-hmm. itself in my life. In my husband says it all the time. He's like, you, you're fine if you stub your toe, but you never want to stub your toe again for the rest of your life. And I was like, definitely. I definitely feel that way. And... Um, I'm curious on this end of writing it, and, and and that's where I'll say like the idea of being in between two gardens really helped me understand that I was not actively hoping for heaven. And that's part of why I was so fearful of, of any future pain, because I was thinking this is as good as it gets. And so if I can get through this pain and experience God, I'll be okay, but I just don't want to do that again. <laughs> but I'm, mm-hmm. I'm just curious to hear you talk about that. And personally, in the season you're in, do you do you feel like a... I, I just perceive that a lot of people feel very strong after making it through pain and are like, oh, I can do anything now. Do you ever just wake up some morning and think like, if I ever have another stomach ache, I think if I were you, I would think if I ever have another stomach ache, I'm out. <laughs> Like I, I've been through it. My actual whole stomach broke. Like I'm not, I, no more, no more stomach aches for me. I'm done. I'm curious just, yeah. Do you feel strong or do you feel fearful <laughs> of future pain? Pain is a tricky thing, you know, because yes. I mean, we unpacked for you earlier how walking through the process of pain can lead us to a greater purpose being revealed in our life. So, you know, there's a fear factor around pain that I think is very normal and just as resistant to pain today as I ever have been. Mm -hmm. I think the thing that's changed for me is I'm able to more quickly give myself perspective when the pain does come. So I cannot tell you, I'm like raising my hand saying, give me more pain. The secret for me is I can find perspective when the pain does come, there's less confusion now. And there's more, I have a greater ability to give myself perspective a lot quicker. Hey friends, you might have heard me talk recently about Dear Heart Designs. They're a jewelry and accessory company that I've just come in contact with that I am loving. 
They make incredible, beautiful pieces of jewelry that also give back to women around the world. Every single month, they choose from a pool of applicants that are in need of support or funding for their mission trips, their adoptions, or just unpaid causes. And a portion of every single purchase from that month goes back to support the selected woman on mission. They've helped, again, pay for adoptions, for mission trips, and just a variety of other needs around the world. I love their passion for creating handcrafted, intentionally designed jewelry that equips women to spread the love of Jesus around the world. And I also love that they're giving you guys a discount code. You can use the code JESS15 to get 15% off your first order from DearHeartDesigns.com. A few people ask this online, and I'm curious if you have an answer. If you wrote the book today, if you sat down to write, it's not supposed to be this way today, is there anything you would change or add? Oh, that's such a good question. So because Art and I are back together, I probably would have been tempted to write a little bit more about the process of getting back together. Yeah. But, you know, I'm kind of thankful that the book ends where it ends yeah. because I very much want people to understand that redemption with God is always possible, even if reconciliation with some of those relationships that have hurt us, yeah. even if reconciliation never happens. And I think a lot of us tie our hope for redemption with reconciliation of, you know, that friendship or that marriage or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. So I'm thankful that the hope of the book doesn't rise and fall on Art and I getting back together. The hope of the book yeah. is really the process of me discovering redemption is possible, you know, even in the midst of the unknowns. So, you know, what was interesting about the timing of the book is of course, when I started writing it, I didn't know how it was going to turn out with art. And I had no idea I was going to get diagnosed with breast cancer. Yeah. So yeah. the day I turned the book in, um, I turned the book in very, very early on a November morning. And I literally sent the book to the publisher and got in my car and drove to the hospital to have my double mastectomy. Mm. And so there was this sense that, I mean, I remember thinking, I wonder if I will even be alive by the time we go through edits, or I wonder if I'll even be alive by the time the book comes out. But I can't say that I would have changed anything because I think part of the stress of people going through pain is living in the messy unknown. And I mm. think this book allows people to just sit in that tension with me yeah. and see it is possible to discover God's redemption, even if you don't know the outcome of your circumstances. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It And it does do that. It gives him so much glory and so much power and takes so much of that power away from pain. And I'm so grateful for that. Okay, last question, which we did not prep you for, but I have to ask for you to tell a story that I have heard told of you and that I have repeated and I think I've not told it well. So I would love to hear it from your from your actual truthful lips because I think I'm, I may have not be telling your story right. 
But I've heard people mention your process to publishing took many tries. Is that true? Mm-hmm. Will you tell? It is so uh, true. Tell a tiny bit about that because I just walked into this world a few years ago, and the tenacity and the confidence that I had to have in God's call on my life, even just a few years ago, it feels so different than even today. I don't, I don't know. I, I feel like we're just in a microwave season of women believing that God's call in their life may happen very quickly or like it should have already happened <laughs> or, um, you know, that you can just do X, Y, and Z and grow a platform really quickly. And the internet, the way culture is right now, the way media is, it's just so, there's so much pressure to make things happen so quickly. And from what I've heard told of your story, there was there was just such a belief in God's call and, and maybe not in yourself or your own power or ability, but just in what you knew he was asking you to do. So yeah, I'd love to hear that. Sure. So in my 20s, when I started with Proverbs 31 Ministries, um, I was very young and my oldest daughter was in an infant carrier. So she turned 25 this year. So I've been at this for a very long time. And at first, when I first started ministry, I remember thinking, I don't want to say anything or write anything. Like I never want to speak or write. I just want to do the behind the scenes marketing stuff because I like that. And I liked doing behind the scenes stuff. So that was kind of my, my big plan, but God really started to get a hold of my heart and people started asking me to speak and to write. And so I can't say that I had the desire to write a book right when I first started, but I will say when I was young. I remember one time my dad brought home a typewriter because his law office was switching to computers. Mm-hmm. And when he brought this typewriter home, I asked him if I could have it. And I remember putting it on my bed and laying my fingers on it and thinking, I don't know enough words to write a whole book yet, but one day mm-hmm. I want to do that. Mm-hmm. And so I do have that memory early on, but then as I got into my twenties, I was like, uh, uh-uh, no, I never want to write or speak or anything like that. But after several years of ministry, I did develop the desire to write a book. And so I put together a book proposal and I went to this conference. And at that time, every summer, there was this conference. Originally, it was called CBA, Christian Booksellers Association. Then it changed to the ICRS conference. But anyhow, I went and I had my little purple Office Max binder with my little book proposal in it. And I kind of naively thought, okay, who wants to publish my book? And I made appointments with all these publishers. And I think I met with like 15 publishers and got 15 rejections. And it was very, very painful. And so I thought, well, obviously I have heard God wrong. And so I decided I did not want to pursue publishing. And I went home and I put my book proposal in a file and closed that drawer and just kind of flippantly said, okay, God, if you ever want me to write a book, you're going to have to bring the opportunity to me. So I did not continue to try to pursue a book deal, but what I did do is I kept writing. And about two years later, there was a 
little newsletter that Larry Burkett, he was a financial advisor. Mm -hmm. There was this little newsletter called um, Money Matters that Larry Burkett put out. And they contacted me and asked me if I would write an article for them for their column around the home. And I agreed to do it. The problem was I procrastinated and procrastinated and procrastinated and I forgot about the article. And then the day the article was due, my sister had come in town with her kids and we were planning to go do fun things with our kids. And all of a sudden I remembered about this article I had to write. So I very quickly wrote the worst article of my entire life and submitted it. And they printed it in that column called Around the Home. And when the Money Matters newsletter came out, the vice president of Moody, who published Larry Burkett, he read the article, liked it, and got in contact with me and offered me a book contract based on the worst article I'd ever oh written. Oh my gosh. And the article was called Living Life on Purpose. And that was the title of my very first book. Mm. So I will say, don't go read that book. I think it's still in print, (laughs) but I wish it wasn't. (laughs) I love that. I love that. I think that is really, really beautiful. I'm so glad that you went on to publish so many incredible books. Is it 24, 26? Yeah, it's something like that. I think it's 24, but honestly, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have a favorite? Because I'm strategic, but I'm not organized. Remember that about me. I love it. Do you have a favorite of the 24? Well, I love it when people ask that because that's kind of like asking which one of my children is my favorite. (laughs) I have five kids. And so usually I'll just say, whichever one is nice to me that day, they get to be my favorite for that day. You know, probably my standard answer, my favorite book is usually the last one that I wrote Mm because I'm closest to the working that God has been doing in my life at that point. You know, I'm closest to that message. But then the next book I write becomes hopefully my new favorite because God's taken me to something new. Yeah, I love that. Lisa, thank you so much. We are so blessed to have gotten to hear a little bit of your heart and the behind the scenes of writing. It's not supposed to be this way. I'm very, very, very thankful for this book and the work God has done in my heart and my life through it. So thank you so much. You're so welcome. What a joy and honor it is again, just to be with you. And, you know, I really, I pray that as people read this book, that it really, really will awaken and quicken inside of them the possibility that God really can take the hardest things that we've walked through Mm -hmm. and um, show us a pathway of healing, but not just a pathway of healing, but a pathway of new possibility in Mm -hmm. our life, deeper wisdom, greater maturity, and actually tuck inside our heart a message that truly someone else needs to hear. And so you know, that, that would be my prayer for you, Jess, and then my prayer for everyone else that reads the book. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. 